0: I'm Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and this is the Manufacturing Report. China is an existential threat
1: to the United States. It is hurting us economically. It is taking our jobs and stealing our technology. It's preparing for war with us. It is spying on us. We have to wake up to that. And so it's kind of like two themes that, and they're related, totally related that I really like to push. One is we need to be focused on workers and everything else will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. You have the jobs, you have the, the workers, the pride in work, that that helps your families. Your families are the reason you have a community. And the reason America is great is because there's thousands of communities of people just like that. That's, that's the secret. It's no more complicated than that. It's not because there's a billionaire in New York City that's got nine homes. That does not make America great, right? <laughs> right. And, right. And it, and it, it is this is this very simple concept. And that's what we have to focus on.
0: Bob Lightheiser is arguably the most consequential trade ambassador in American history. Ambassador Lightheiser served as our 18th United States trade representative during Donald Trump's presidency. And under Lightheiser's leadership, We renegotiated NAFTA into a new agreement called the USMCA. Lighthizer also initiated a process that ended up imposing tariffs on broad swaths of goods coming from China. He fundamentally altered the way in which policymakers look at trade policy, setting aside the philosophical inclination towards free trade in favor of an approach that put the interests of America, our national security, and our workers first. That produced some tremendous blowback from our allies, from competitors, and from global businesses, but it's a policy that seems to be sticking. I was very fortunate to spend a few minutes catching up with Bob Lighthizer on his new book, No Trade is Free, as well as his thoughts about his work in past administrations, and what comes next for trade policy in America. All of that next on The Manufacturing Report. Bob Lightheiser, thank you so much for joining us on The Manufacturing
1: Report. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for all the great work you do on behalf of American working people. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, right back to you. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've had a long career uh service and in trade policy. Uh you've been very outspoken about your views on trade policy, which many people viewed as unorthodox for a long period of time. I think the the winds are shifting there. But but I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners what led you to that path, to a different view on trade policy from what either the theoretical economic orthodoxy suggests or national politics suggested for a couple of decades so so that's an interesting question Scott I you know first of all I
1: come from a small town in Ohio and it's one of those towns where, You know only a small percent of the people have a college education and when i was young it was thriving it had ore; it would take ore from minnesota come to the port you know we'd go on a train down to pittsburgh and made auto parts it made fiberglass it did a lot of things like that and and those people those working-class people who made a middle class and made a great community a lot of them were the people who suffered from this very bad policy over a period of time i mean Policy has been bad for a while, but it, in my uh, ideas, it really sort of blew up in the 90s. And the, the problem started before that, because even in the 80s and the 70s, we were starting to have problems. But it, it kind of really blew up in the 90s. And, and so those people have really suffered. And, and they are just an example, right? Ashville, Ohio is just one example of places across the country. And, it, and they were told, well, you're lazy or your bosses are stupid. Yeah. And all these things. And it was just bad policy, right? They were just screwed by bad policy. They were good people working hard. And and it was kind of a convergence of that background with when we did the first trade bill that I was involved with as Republican staff director before I became staff director of the finance when We did the, the Tokyo round. And you'd look at it and you'd say, Is this really in the interest of American workers? Right? Is it really or is it in the interest of corporations or or politicians or People who worry about geopolitics, and so over time that kind of festered and festered and festered, and I, I just d- developed this philosophy that these things, we're not interested so much in, we or we shouldn't be so much in the price of products, and consumption. We ought to be interested in workers and the dignity of work and production, and that's what made America great. It was we kind of got off this track, and and we were going down a bad way, and I just decided that I would fight it. And I had some great allies. I had, you know, Leo Girard and really great people. Obviously, Tom Conway now, you know, there was a body of people that were had this view too that I could kind of latch on to.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And we're going to get to your book in a second, which is great, No Trade is Free. But I want to take you back to something you wrote in 2008, which really left an impression on me. I I quote it to this day. It was an op-ed called Grand Old Protectionists, and it appeared in the New York Times. I'm sure you remember it because you wrote it. Uh, And it was with reference to John McCain, who was at the time the the Republican nominee, you know, ardent free trader, as you know. And, And you were making the case that that runs against kind of like traditional Republican policy and and politics for a long time obviously a lot has changed between john mccain donald trump and where we are right now what do you think kind of crystallized that change among republicans in addition to that very persuasive op-ed that you wrote bob
1: first of all i appreciate that i assure you that john mccain did not forget it because he held up my nomination (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and ended up, I had three Republicans vote against me, and I'm completely convinced that, that John McCain, he was one of them, he gathered two of them, his like-minded people. So, you know, the first place, I think the Republican uh, philosophy, I see conservative philosophy, should be about workers. That's really what, and that's what, and manufacturing, that's what it was forever. And then we kind of got into the post-war period, and then there was this sense we ought to fight communism, which was fine. Yeah. um because that was an important thing to do uh but then at some point there was this strain of sort of libertarianism that kind of infected conservatism the way i think of it uh and a lot of those people were they kind of extreme types who were like you know uh, uh you know we free markets and and uh i can't pretend i asked you one person uh it was a council of economic biologist guy in Reagan way back in reagan saying if the whole world closed to us would we still be right to open up to them? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we get all this cheap stuff. And I'm like, you know, uh, you know i think like people like you. And this guy, by the way, went on to do a liber- big job in libertarian operation. Uh, I think with with you know with, with with people like you thinking for this party uh, and for the country, we're dead, right? The, yeah. the average guy's dead. So so, you know, if you say kind of. When did it crystallize? You know, it was more—it's more interesting than that to me. If okay. you think back to Ronald Reagan, when Ronald Reagan left office, this, this very libertarian group, his name I won't say, with the very libertarian group, said he was the most protectionist president since Hoover. So there yeah. was always, you know, you had, you know, there was always this kind of a strain of kind of pro-American populism in the party. And Ronald Reagan did the steel stuff, right? He did semiconductors. He did sure. Davidson, he did all this stuff, all this, this uh, stuff that, to protect American workers because it was just the right, fair thing to do. You even go before that, and you think of 1971, Nixon, who didn't have much of a trade profile, in my opinion, and so he, which many other people were doing it, but he did put in place tariffs on, across the world when we start, you know, on, on everyone, to That's change right. the, the, yeah. the price of gold. So there was always this pragmatic, pro, at least pro manufacturing, if not pro worker element through this party. And then you found yourself, you know, with some of these people like John McCain's a classic example, who were probably far more libertarian than anything was- else. And then they developed, along with like liberal economists in colleges, they developed this notion that, oh, free trade has. Lifted, you know, it's the greatest thing in the world. It's lifted 400 million people out of poverty, and because all of them were in China, right? And they, it was putting people in jar in poverty in the United States, and, and 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 helping people in China, which was kind of a yeah. cuckoo like, thing. And then I think if you kind of fast forward, because you think of if you go through the, the on the things that you and I care about, there was essentially no difference between the policies of not necessarily the way they campaigned, but the policies of Clinton, uh, W. Bush, yeah. Obama. And these people all had exactly the same, exactly the same view, and they were exactly the same group of rich people in the Northeast and in the Far West, sort of setting the policy and, again, getting richer. Yeah. And the, when the worker getting treated worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, it was, I mean, and it really was that that, that Trump took a sledgehammer to. Now, I've been arguing it forever, Sure. But, yeah. but without, and so were you, so had you been. Yeah. And so were the people I just talked about. But but the reality is that uh he, he, nobody was backed up at the high level. So you'd end up you'd end up with uh you know, in in Obama's elections, both of them, he would come out like for NAFTA. We need to change NAFTA. Yeah. Bush would say the same thing. And then when they would get in, they wouldn't do anything because right. the, right. the, the the muddy guys didn't want to do anything. So it took kind of the the, the confluence of a President Trump. It was willing to just throw a rock against the crystal, and and the fact that I we, the ability. So I wasn't slow walking any of it. Mm-hmm. And and then we finally did some of these things that people had campaigned on but never really believed
0: in. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. Thank you for sharing that perspective, Bob. I think it's very helpful. Now I do want to get into the book and and congratulations. I think it's a a great, very candid accounting of how we got where we are, how you got where you are. takes us inside some of those trade policy conversations from 2017 to 2021 When a lot really got done, USMCA, China, lots of other things. I'm wondering for people who are going to read your book or who want, you know, who who are going to be informing the policy conversation moving forward as well, Bob, what do you hope they get out of the very rich and deep content uh, you have in No Trade is Free?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for your comments on the book. And it really was written for policy people, but also for working people. I want working people to, to read this book and get a sense of what happened to them. Yeah. And, and the prescription is important, but, but it's not complicated, yeah. right? writing uh, the ship is not that hard. So I wanted these people in these areas to engage and think about these policies. These are the affected people. So to me, what are the takeaways that, you know, it's kind of like two takeaways. One, if you look at the history of what happened, it was unfair and the United States was treated unfair and it was for bad reasons and that a lot of people got hurt as a result of it. And two, we have to do something to bring back manufacturing and balance rate in a big way. We need more jobs in, that, in those areas and other jobs related to manufacturing. And we need more upward pressure on wages right i mean that's really what we need we need more people in the middle class who are there who are not college educated people but are hardworking people and that the focus of our economic policy and i focus just on trade here should be helping those people that should be it's quite specific that should be so that's the one takeaway and it and it's it's sort of completely logical right it's not like it's anything you know it's but but anyway, that's the one. And the other takeaway is that China is an existential threat to the United States. It is hurting us economically. It is taking our jobs and selling our technology. It's preparing for war with us. It is spying on us. I mean, just in the last two weeks, they've had cases brought against two sailors who American sailors who were involved in espionage with the Chinese. They've had warships off of Alaska. I mean, you know, the balloon coming across America, the the stuff in Cuba and these things that are so aggressive yeah uh, we have to wake up to that and 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 so it's kind of like two themes that and they're related totally related that I really like to push one is we need to be focused on workers and everything else will take care of itself Mm -hmm. you have the jobs you have the the workers the pride in work that that helps your families your families are the reason you have a community And the reason America is great is because there's thousands of communities of people just like that. That's that's the secret. It's no more complicated than that. It's not because there's a billionaire in New York City that's got nine homes. That does not make America great, right? (laughs) Right. And and it it, it is this is this very simple concept, and that's what we have to focus on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Bob. I think one of the great successes of the administration and and you was the USMCA, which is the US-Mexico-Canada Agreement, which replaced NAFTA for our listeners who aren't tuned into to trade policy every day. But I'll I'll share something, and then I, I want to ask you a question about it. In my experience, and I had worked for Democratic members of Congress who were trade critics and at the AFL-CIO, and these voices were always shut out of negotiations. I, and I think you'd probably agree with that. And uh, in this case, There was a lot of consultation for domestic manufacturing and American workers and people who had been critics, I think righteous critics of trade policy and the agreement reflected that and it had a lot of democratic support in addition to Republican support and a lot of groups who had traditionally opposed some trade agreements supported it. And so, in a lot of ways, it was transformational, I think, for that trade agreement debate. Um, and it included included some very innovative features. Now, you can't do anything about the macro economy. And obviously, a lot of things have changed. And so, we're seeing lots of imports come in from Mexico now. The imports are, are down from China. And we're still, I guess, pretty early into its implementation. but. What's, what's your takeaway from how it's going? Is it working as it was intended, or what, what do we need to be thinking about, Bob?
1: So, so, so first of all, your, your point is exactly right. I mean, if you said who was the key person, you know, it would be sort of two key people in the, in the I call it the book, the, the second negotiation. That is the year with Congress helping the things essentially done. Uh, it's obviously Speaker Pelosi and it's Rich Trumka. Um, and on on one occasion, actually, Rich and I, who became a very good friend, and his I mean this loss is like something that working people will will affect negatively for a generation.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And um, but I spoke to the to the, with him, the two of us, the, the entire Democratic Caucus in the House, right, which is sort of. I don't think anyone had done that in Republican administration in a long, long time. So, yeah. and and obviously Leo was involved at the beginning, and then, and then Tom was involved. Um, so, and, and and a lot of other union people too. So, those were voices. Those were, but it wasn't like I was doing it for any reason other than they agreed with me, right? I mean, these were these were my guys. I've been like working. Bye. I've been on the, you know, in the in the trenches with them for forever, and 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 I did want to change things. This was a great opportunity. So, and we did a lot of innovative stuff. We took the rules of origin and literally said this: these should be designed to bring manufacturing back to America. We could go through all that, but that's not really what the question is. So, your question is kind of: is it working? So, I would say a few things on that. Yeah. Um, Number one before we did it nine of the previous 11 auto plants built in north america were built in mexico yeah and now that's not happening so to some extent for sure we stopped this rush and let's be honest autos and the related auto manufacturing is the biggest part of our trade like right? by absolutely far. yeah by far. Yeah. and so we changed that i'd say number one number two i think it takes time We turn the boat around, it takes time. The rules of origin themselves are not even fully implemented yet, right? There's a lot of things. So so this is going to be something that's going to play out over a long period of time. Secondly, your comment about China. Uh, Before we change these rules of origin we talk about, you could count as North American or NAFTA content any product that didn't exist in whatever, you know, 1994, right? Because of this yeah. deeming thing. Mm-hmm. And that brought in a lot of Chinese stuff, all the electronics, all this came in, and it came in and said, ah, this is from North America, even though that was a fraud, it wasn't from North America. So we changed all that. Um, but but, um, I would say, if, if uh, I'm very proud of it, I think it's doing great. It always mm-hmm. is going to have to be monitored. Yeah. Um, if there is a lot of content coming in through Mexico from China, then that's got to be correct. We have to just take yeah. an action to do that, and business will be upset, and that'll be too bad. Mexico will be upset, and that'll be too bad. Um, the general notion on our—and I'm just going to take a slight diversion. The notion that that our China tariffs have driven— some um, additional imports and low-end manufacturing to Mexico is, in my opinion, a, a good outcome. Now, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily a NAFTA mm-hmm. result, yep. but those China tariffs—if we're not shifting money to China and and buying more and employing more and having a more prosperous Mexico—that is a trade I would take in a New York minute. Right. I mean, yeah. the reality is sure. that we are better off with Mexico being prosperous they're on our border, they, we have a lot of Mexican Americans, we have a lot of you know, mm-hmm. cultural reasons and they need security Certainly. down there. And, and, and that part of it kind of makes sense. But, but I, I, I would say, I think it was masterful and innovative. I think it has changed things. Our exports have also gone way up to, yeah. to Mexico as a result of that. It's not just coming the one way. But um if there are, there clearly will be things that will have to be corrected, and mm-hmm. that's why we put in the sunset provision, mm-hmm. right? So in in two years, they're going to be negotiating changes.
0: Yeah, and there's been a couple
1: of cases that have not gone well that have been wrong and wrongly decided, in my opinion, in the auto parts area. I won't get into the details of it, mm-hmm. but there's some stuff like that that that. I think we have to be far more ruthless in terms of, of enforcing, and insisting that they're changed in the next. Day. In other words, we always knew business people and the Chinese are going to do what they can to get around this, and that's yeah. why we put in place a sunset so that it's clear that we're going to revisit these things, and we will have the leverage if yeah. we use it to. Yeah. to, to correct these things and one of the things I would correct for sure would be Chinese content and things coming in from Mexico yeah um, and, and I would make it so that those things don't get the benefit of NAFTA um some of them are getting it right now because of lack of enforcement right but, um but to the extent that they need change that we need to change it but for sure it stopped this outflow this 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 uh you know Mm-hmm. To sort of an upgraded uh, updated uh, Ross Pro giant sucking sound it was in the auto industry yeah. it stopped oh, that so. yeah. turned it around and I think it's fair to say that some of this manufacturing or creating of factories in the United States that we've seen a lot of in recent in the very recent period is because of NAFTA Some of it's because of the tariffs mm-hmm. in on China but some of it is literally because of NAFTA because we yeah. have to have 40 percent of those cars. And that means basic people say, why are these battery manufacturers uh, coming to the United States? because of the way we wrote that. There was no mystery, right. no secret. Right. We wrote yeah. that so that they had to make the batteries. The batteries are too big a part of the car. The batteries have to be made in America. or Your car won't qualify for, for the tax exemption. Right. I mean, for the tariff exemption. So, or, right. so right. The, you know, a lot of that's driving. I and mean, we saw EVs coming, you know, as something and we know that that the battery is whatever the heck it is 40 percent of the car so you have to make that in the United States and that's why they're doing it
0: yeah yeah that all makes sense Let, let's shift for a minute uh, to talk specifically about China and you've touched on this before um I mean I'm sure you read this I certainly see this that a, a lot of folks think that we've hit peak China that uh either Xi Jinping or structurally um they're 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 digging a, a bigger hole for themselves. Um, demographics, uh, and uh, that that could be dangerous, or that that negates the need for tougher action uh, with respect to China. I mean, you obviously pointed out uh, some of the aggressive things that uh, the the CCP has been doing. Um, I I presume you think China is still a very serious threat, probably the biggest threat that we need to pay attention to from not only an, for a military or national security. Or human rights perspective, but also from an economic perspective. I mean, am I right about that, Bob? Yeah,
1: that's absolutely true. So uh, I would say not only the biggest threat we have to think about now, I would say China is the most uh, dangerous threat that we have uh, seen in 200 years. I think it's, if you look at the combination of Germany and Japan, their economies together were whatever they were, 50 or 60% of the US economy. China is right now approaching 80%. And if you use it, you know, some, some, by some metrics, they're higher. So it's a, they are dangerous. They are very hostile. They're very anti American. And when I hear all these, these people say, oh, well, no, they have economic problems. First of all, I mean, just, you didn't mention it, but I will. They, one of the things these people said, and some, I think they're just trying to lull us to sleep, literally. Well, they have a population problem. I'm thinking that, you know, the, the, if you dig into that a little bit, they say, oh yeah, by the year 2080, they'll only have a billion people. Yeah. I'm thinking, so that's, I'm supposed to feel good about that. A billion people, it, you know, 50 years from now, I mean, it's, it's just completely crazy. Like that's supposed to make me feel better. And mm-hmm. do they have economic problems? Yeah, but 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 that doesn't reduce the threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Stalin had economic problems in the late twenties We he did and five or six million Ukrainians starved to death in. And, yeah. and now it is greatly forward. That that didn't reduce the threat of anything. They the Communist Party still has complete control. They're still hostile to the United States, and they are rapidly gaining on us economically, technologically, and militarily. So, uh, I mean, I take no souls from that. And when I, when I hear someone say, oh, well, you know, this is really not gonna be a problem in the long run, I'm thinking in the long run, what do you, you know, in the long run, they may have won. Are you crazy? We, so I'm a big proponent of what I call strategic decoupling. You just have to, I'm not saying no trade, you've gotta have, you'll you have trade, but it's gotta be balanced. And the thing people talk about—they in this administration should get a bad, bad, good grades on some things, bad on others. They're good at—they did a good job on, on the export control stuff. Mm-hmm. But but it's not just about technology. It's also about transfer of wealth. And when you run a trade deficit of three hundred and fifty or or so billion dollars every year, add on top of that. $300 billion in lost stolen technology. Yeah. You know, add on top of that, diversion, products coming through diversion. Add on top of that, the money they make from precursors in fentanyl being sold through Mexico. I mean, you're talking about, we've transferred trillions of dollars of wealth to them. We really have paid for their army. We paid for their navy. We bought their technology. No. I, could, I mean, you could do the numbers and show that their economic growth from like 2001 to now, which is about tenfold, while ours is, you know, barely over two, you could you could make a pretty good case that almost all of that was wealth transfer from the United States and in, in terms of technology and jobs and trade deficits. So we have to get back to balance trade. We have to do a far better job of disentangling our technology. And then we have to face straight on this issue of. Americans investing in China which really really needs attention we should limit that dramatically and their and their investments here we should limit dramatically so yeah. so that's what i call strategic decoupling and i feel more strongly about it than ever
0: yeah yeah and i know you touched on this you testified a few months ago before this house select committee on the strategic competition between the united states and the chinese communist party i know your testimony was um i agreed with every word of it i will say i'm wondering because you're you're raising up some very important issues that you've identified some some policy levers to utilize like withdrawing pntr for china tightening up the export controls a little more you know and obviously keeping some of the, the keeping the tariffs in place I'm wondering, and this is more of a process politics question, because so much of the action taken on China was executive action, right, in the Trump administration. There have been some, I would call, internal investments that have been put into place in this last kind of, uh, in in the Biden administration. Do you hold out a hope that uh, we can get anything done with with divided government right now with respect to China or some of these recommendations that you've lifted up? So,
1: in the first place, uh, you know, I agreed, of course, also with your
0: testimony before and thought
1: it was excellent too. And I think that committee it has got just a terrific chairman and a terrific ranking member. I mean, two yeah. really. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, get young. Mike Gallagher is young, you know, yeah. uh, Roger Christopher, 50s, but that's still, yeah. I've gotten that's young.
0: That's young but, for Congress.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's young for Congress. So you've got, <laughs> and you've got a lot of good members on there. I mean, really yeah. solid. And yeah. and, and, and I, look at, I give uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy a lot of credit for setting yeah. up that committee because there was a lot of pressure to do that. And the previous uh, Congresses wouldn't do it. So I am, I am hopeful. Let me make a couple of basic points. First of all, and you know this because you're an old hand in Washington. Nothing's easier to do in Washington than stop something. So sure. stop, stop getting through. <laughs> if you're a lobbyist and you're hired to top stuff, you got a ninety percent chance you're going to be successful. That's number one. Number two, all the money is on the side of not doing anything to to negatively affect China, because all the people yeah. who are getting rich. There was this great concept years ago by this guy Buchanan, and it was an economist, and it was it was concentrated concentrated benefits and diffused payments and he won the nobel prize yeah. over this simple concept right yeah and yeah. this is exactly what we have we have a few people getting really rich either investing in China or bringing stuff into the United States and those people are going to be more interested and more affected and more effective than all the dispersed payments which is all the working people across the country so uh the money, the Chamber of Commerce, all this is all on the side of helping China. They don't articulate it that way, but that's in fact where it is. Um, having said that, I, I think we do have good leadership in the House on this issue. In the Senate, we certainly have a Democratic leader who understands this problem and has for yeah. 25 years. Yeah, now, that's true. This problem is going to be if the white house is against doing anything and it's very hard to be the leader of the party in the senate when your party has the white house and not do what the white house wants so he's going to be mm-hmm. hamstrung i i fear in doing things but i'll i'll tell you what because the white house doesn't want to do anything because for, mm-hmm. for a whole variety of reasons but i'll tell you to me what what i have proposed and i really wish that people would do this i would have if if I were running the House, I would have a vote every week or every two weeks on some small part of what we're talking about. Yeah, So I would have a vote on getting rid of TikTok on uh, uh, Wednesday afternoon and (laughs) and just say, fine. And you you and I know if you had that vote, you would get the vast majority of, of Republicans, you'd get the vast majority of Democrats, and then just send it to the Senate. And 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 after a while, you would have then. There's several more of these things. To me, are 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 not even you know de minimis, right? Which we could <laughs> yeah. talk about. I mean, that yeah. I mean, that would pass. There would be some get small majority, but it would pass the House with you know with 300 votes, right? Yeah. And and then it would go to the Senate, and then eventually you do 10 of these things. Then what what happens in the Senate? They either do nothing. Mm -hmm. which is what the white house would want them to do and if if they do that then they have a political issue a major political issue right yeah because this kind of builds up and then little you know there's some chance that they'll start passing some of them on the theory that they have to relieve the political issue as we get close to an election so I I'm like I think these big China bills are fine Mm -hmm. but but there are so many things that when clearly explained We'd get a vast majority of republicans and democrats and i would just start passing those things now it's not the way congress changed to think mm-hmm. but it's the way i would do it and i and yeah. then you would end up with 10 bills passed the house in the senate what do they do yeah and you got a reasonably sympathetic majority leader mm-hmm. hamstrung yeah. by 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 the administration that doesn't want to that that likes china yeah. in fairness and I think it's a better strategy, but yeah, uh, you, you know, I hope they find a way to get a good bill out of the House, get it to the Senate, and and then see what happens.
0: Yeah, yeah, that uh, th- that that seems wise t- to me, and I, I completely agree. For instance, we had. Uh, congressman blumenauer on the podcast to talk about de minimis and to explain it since it's such an archaic term but the logic of that is and i agree with you i think there'd be overwhelming support for for that and for some issues like that that you that you raised up in your testimony bob um i i want to uh i want to ask you a question about your uh your successor as ustr but i want to tee it up this way you know i you know i'm um when I started working on Capitol Hill, I worked for a member from the Midwest who was a trade critic, and this was in the first Bush administration, the George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush uh, administration. And then, so I've seen a series of trade ambassadors along the way who, <laughs> who, who, uh, you know, mostly pushed for more free trade agreements, and mostly uh, did not have the gas pedal down on enforcement unless there was overwhelming pressure to do so and then it was usually a half measure i i think you the most transformational and uh uh and, and successful trade ambassador that we've had um those are obviously hard shoes to fill for anybody um and i know that you know katherine ty very well having worked with her on usmca how do you think she's doing
1: I think she's doing a good job i i you know quite openly and publicly say i i like her i think she's smart i think she agrees and sees the world Mm -hmm. the way you and i see it Uh, and i think she's doing a good job her problem is that she's in an administration that doesn't support her the way my administration supported me um and that's that's a big factor so she's got uh, um, you know, a, a, a secretary of treasury. She's got a secretary of state. She's got, and she's got really a president who has a long, hard tradition of free trade, and uh, and I what I would consider to be pro-China stances, and that makes her job more difficult than it would be uh, if she had the opposite, and I had the opposite. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I, 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 I think she's terrific. I think she's doing a good job. I support her in any way I can. But, but she has the, the problem is that the, the president and, and this president has a long history of free trade and, and being pro-China. And uh, uh, some of it is just simply that, and you know this to be true, Foreign policy people, and he's a foreign policy guy, right? He was a foreign foreign, you know, you know, relations committee. He was a, yeah. a foreign policy guy. Those guys tend not, and women tend not to think of the economics as important as the geopolitics, mm-hmm. and so they tend to be free traders, and they tend not want to take economic action, and 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 that's something that's, that's holding them up, I think. Yeah. And so so to me she's she 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 she's she's very good and, and I like
0: her yeah. yeah thanks for responding to that and just a quick follow-up because uh, I I don't disagree with you about Biden's senatorial record I mean it it's you know it's very you know kind of Orthodox for foreign policy Democratic types totally agree with you but given that does it surprise you at all that by and large the the tariffs the 301 tariffs the 232 tariffs some of the trade enforcement actions, are largely still in place.
1: So I would say, no, it does not, because one, it would be wildly unpopular for him to take them on. Two, some of the same guys you and I were talking about, you know, the, the labor guys yeah. would have a conniption. Sure. So it doesn't surprise fair. me. Now, yeah. If you said, Bob, do you think? Six months into a Biden reelect, we will have these tariffs. I would say not a chance in hell. Mm. I think mm. they'll get rid of them in this in the second term. They're contrary to their entire their their entire uh, worldview. And I mm. think if you look at other things, the things that should be done, we should be in a stage now where we're increasing substantially these tariffs, not maintaining them. And I give Caffey and others a lot of credit for maintaining them for sure. Yep. but we should be in the next stage. The yeah. trade bloody deficit with china is going crazy we should be raising those tariffs yeah. we should be stopping um uh, uh, outgoing u.s investment and they come up with this very very weak executive order that's not even nothing's going to happen for another year and they only they're very much too narrow in their sit in their in their sectors that they want to protect us from so if you look across the board at their china not you know, diminishing that balloon coming across, that was a serious affront. You know, there's a lot of things that they're not doing that they should be doing. So, just- uh, you know, on the tariffs, I agree with you, but as a general matter, they need to be doing a lot more at a very crucial time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I had one last question for you, and I guess this is looking into the crystal ball as well. Do you think that trade politics and policy mm-hmm have been, you know, that the center point has permanently moved, I guess, in both parties. Because I think I could make the argument that I see more policy prescriptions moving the policy in your direction, like repealing PNTR or putting across the board tariffs or taking more trade enforcement actions. And and I see this more even, I mean, you you mentioned uh, Senator Schumer you know, as being someone who gets China and all of that, but, but, but it seems to me that at least you know, and it could be more rhetorically. We'll see what happens. Policy that that there's been this shift. Do you think there's any going back, or do you think it's forever kind of headed in the direction you'd like to see?
1: Well, so so I think there has been a fundamental shift. If you're asking, is it permanent? You know, eternal vigilance is the price for liberty, right? Not worth. Sure. There's still a lot of guys with billions of dollars out there with a big stake in helping China, so uh, and and in 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 importing from other places, and yeah. so it's the kind of thing that if 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 you stop doing what you're doing, and people who think like you stop doing what you're doing, and and uh, you know the the unions and the like stop doing what they're doing, then we have a threat if we right now we're on a winning streak we're doing great but i don't take anything for granted and i think we have to just keep up the fight right along we're we're in a place where 20 years ago you and i would have thought was absolutely impossible metaphysically impossible and yet we're there but you can you know you can give up a lot of gain if you just let the you know let the guard down
0: yeah well uh i will say we're just following your lead uh and thank you so much for all that you've done to i think really make some transformational change uh in all of this bob and congratulations on the book and thank you so much for spending a little time with us on the podcast today
1: yes been my pleasure so keep up the good work scott we need you
0: And that will do it for the Manufacturing Report this week. To find Bob Lightheiser's book, No Trade is Free, you can go to any major bookseller. To find out more about the work we do at the Alliance for American Manufacturing, you can find us online at americanmanufacturing.org. I'd like to thank the great team at AAM and Brian Aguilar in particular for making this episode of the podcast possible. I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for engaging with us and for giving us some great episode ideas. Please keep them coming. And while you're at it, if you would kindly leave a review and a rating, it would help other listeners who might be interested in this content to find us. You can connect with us on X at Keep it Made in USA, And we're also on Instagram, Threads, LinkedIn, and Facebook. I'm Scott Paul, and until next time, Together, we can keep it made in America.